rest and sleep. Whether you're here to embark on a beautiful night's sleep or just to listen to an exceptional story, it's really nice to have you with us. We have reached the concluding episode of Daphne du Maurier's The Birds. If you've yet to hear parts one, two, and three, do it. We'll have you back here in a little while. Go on now. <laughs> All right, some have claimed that The Birds is actually an allegory for what went on in World War II. And that's understandable, uh, what with our protagonist, um, Nat, right, being a wartime veteran and all of his devices and preparations. I tell you, if I was ever in an emergency situation, this is the man I would depend upon. Uh, and my husband, of course. Um, one could also say this story may work as an allegory for the pandemic we're experiencing now. What do you think? Let me know. But first, you gotta tuck in and enjoy the conclusion of Daphne du Maurier's The Birds. Nat had no time to answer. He was raking the bodies from the chimney, clawing them out onto the floor. The flames still roared, and the danger of the chimney catching fire was one he had to take. Now the flames would send away the living birds from the chimney top. The lower joint was a difficulty though. This was choked with smoldering, helpless bodies of the birds caught by the fire. He scarcely heeded the attack on the windows and the door, let them beat their wings, break their necks, lose their lives in the attempt to force an entry into his home. They would not break in. Oh, he thanked God he had one of the old cottages with small windows and stout walls, not like the new council houses. Oh, heaven help them, up in the lane in the new council houses. Stop crying, he called to the children. Nothing to be afraid of, stop crying. He went on raking at the burning, smoldering bodies as they fell into the fire. This'll fetch him, he said to himself. The draft and the flames together were all right, as long as the chimney doesn't catch. Oh, I ought to be shot for this. It, it's all my fault. Last thing, I should have made up the fire. I knew there was something. Amid the scratching and tearing at the window boards <laughs> came the sudden homey striking of the kitchen clock. 3 a.m. All right, a little more than four hours yet to go. He could not be sure of the exact time of high water. He reckoned it would not turn much before half past seven, maybe 20 to eight. Light up the Primus, he said to his wife. Make us some tea and the kids some cocoa. No use sitting around doing nothing. That was the line. Keep her busy and the children too. Move about, eat, drink. Always best to be on the go. Waited for the range. 
the flames were dying, but no more blackened bodies fell from the chimney. He thrust his poker up as far as it could go and found nothing. It was clear. The chimney was clear. He wiped the sweat from his forehead. Come on now, Jill, he said. Bring me some more sticks. We'll have a good fire going directly. She wouldn't come near him, though. She was staring at the heaped, singed bodies of the birds. Oh, never mind them, he said. We'll put those in the passage when I've got the fire steady. The danger of the chimney was over. It could not happen again. Not if the fire was burning. Kept burning. Day and night. Well, I'll have to get more fuel from the farm tomorrow, he thought. Hmm, this'll never last. We'll manage, though. I can do all that with the ebb tide. It can be worked. Fetching what we need when the tide's turned. We've just got to adapt ourselves. That's all. They drank tea and cocoa and ate slices of bread and bovril. Only half a loaf left, Nat noticed. Never mind, though. They'd get by. Stop it, said young Johnny, pointing to the windows with his spoon. Stop it, old birds. That's right, said Nat, smiling. We don't want the old beggars, do we? We've had enough of them. They began to cheer when they heard the thud of the suicide birds. There's another, Dad, cried Jill. He's done for. Yeah, he's had it, said Nat. There goes the blighter. This was the way to face up to it. This was the spirit. If they could keep this up, hang on like this until seven, when the first news bulletin came through, they would not have done too badly. Give us a cigarette, he said to his wife. A bit of a smoke will clear away the smell of the scorched feathers. Oh, there's only two left in the packet, she said. I was gonna buy you some from the co-op. Well, I'll have one he said. The other will keep for a rainy day. No sense trying to make the children rest. There was no rest to be got while the tapping and scratching went on at the windows. He sat with one arm round his wife and the other round Jill with Johnny on his mother's lap and the blankets heaped about them on the mattress. You know, you can't help admiring the beggars, he said. They've got persistence. You'd think they'd tire of the game, but not a bit. Admiration was hard to sustain. The tapping went on and on, and a new rasping note struck Nat's ear, as though a sharper beak than any hitherto had come take over from its fellows. He tried to remember the names of birds. He tried to think which species would go for this particular job. It was not the tap of the woodpecker. That would be light and frequent. This was more serious because if it continued long, that wood would splinter just like the glass had done. And then he remembered. 
the hawks? Could the hawks have taken over from the gulls? Were there buzzards now upon the sills using talons as well as beaks? Hawks, buzzards, kestrels, falcons. He had forgotten the birds of prey. He had forgotten the gripping power of the birds of prey. Three hours to go. And while they waited, the sound of the splintering wood, the talons tearing at the wood. Nat looked about him, seeing what furniture he could destroy to fortify the door. Now the windows were safe because of the dresser. He was not certain of the door. He went upstairs, but when he reached the landing, he paused and listened. Was the soft patter on the floor of the children's bedroom. The birds had broken through. He put his ear to the door. No mistake. He could hear the rustle of wings and the light patter as they searched the floor. The other bedroom was still clear. He went into it and began bringing out the furniture to pile at the head of the stairs. Should the door of the children's bedroom go? Well, it was a preparation. It might never be needed. He could not stack the furniture against the door because the door opened inward. The only possible thing was to have it at the top of the stairs. Come down, Nat, what are you doing? Called his wife. Oh, I won't be long, he shouted. Just making everything shipshape up here. He did not want her to come. He did not want her to hear the pattering of the feet in the children's bedroom, the brushing of those wings against the door. At 5.30, he suggested breakfast, bacon and fried bread, if only to stop the growing look of panic in his wife's eyes and to calm the fretful children. She did not know about the birds upstairs, and that bedroom luckily was not over the kitchen. Had it been so, she could not have failed to hear the sound of them up there tapping the boards and the silly, senseless thud of the suicide birds, the death and glory boys, who flew into the bedroom, smashing their heads against the walls. He knew them of old, the herring gulls. They had no brains. The blackbacks were different. They knew what they were doing. And so did the buzzards. And so did the hawks. He found himself watching the clock, gazing at the hands that went so slowly round the dial. If his theory was not correct, if the attack did not cease, with the turn of the tide, he knew they were beaten. They could not continue through the long day without air, without rest, without fuel, without, without his mind raced. He knew there were so many things they needed to withstand the siege. They were not fully prepared. They were not ready. 
You know, it might be that it would be safer in the towns after all. If he could get a message through on the farm telephone to his cousin, only a short journey by train up country, well, they might be able to hire a car and that would be quicker. Hire a car between tides. His wife's voice, calling his name, drove away the sudden desperate desire for sleep. Huh? What is it? What now? He said sharply. The wireless, said his wife. I've been watching the clock. It's nearly seven. Well, don't twist the knob, he said, impatient for the first time. It's on the home. Where it is. They'll speak from the home. They waited. The kitchen clock struck seven. There was no sound. No chimes. No music. They waited until a quarter past, switching to the light. The result was the same. No news bulletin came through. Well, we just heard wrong, he said. They won't be broadcasting until eight o'clock. They left it switched on, and Nat thought of the battery, wondered how much power was left in it. It was generally recharged when his wife went shopping in the town. If the battery failed, they would never hear the instructions. Oh, it's getting light, whispered his wife. I, I mean, I can't see it, but I can feel it, and... The birds, they're not hammering so loud. And she was right. The rasping, tearing sound grew fainter every moment. So did the shuffling, the jostling for place upon the step, upon the sills. The tide was on the turn. By eight, there was no sound at all, only the wind. The children, lulled at last by the stillness, fell asleep. At half past eight, Nat switched the wireless off. Well, what are you doing? We'll miss the news, said his wife. There isn't going to be any news, said Nat. We've got to depend upon ourselves. He went to the door and slowly pulled away the barricades. He drew the bolts and kicking the bodies from the step outside the door, breathed the cold air. He had six working hours before him and he knew he must reserve his strength for the right things, not waste it in any way. Food and light and fuel, these were the necessary things. He could give them insufficiency and if he could, they could endure another night. He stepped into the garden, and as he did so, he saw the living birds. The gulls had gone to ride the sea, as they had done before. They sought seafood and the buoyancy of the tide before they returned to the attack. Not so the land birds. They waited and watched. Nat saw them. They were on the hedgerows, on the soil. They were crowded in the trees. They were outside in the field, line upon line of birds, all still, doing nothing. 
He went to the end of his small garden. Birds did not move. They went on watching him. Well, I've got to get food, said Nat to himself. I've got to go to the farm to find food. He went back to the cottage. He saw to the windows and the doors. He went upstairs and opened the children's bedroom. It was empty, except for the dead birds on the floor. The living were out there in the garden, in the fields. He went downstairs. I'm going to the farm, he said. His wife clung to him. She had seen the living birds from the open door. Take us with you, she begged. We can't stay here alone. I would rather die than stay here alone. He considered the matter. He nodded. Come on then, he said. Bring baskets and Johnny's pram. We can load up the pram. They dressed against the biting wind, wore gloves and scarves. His wife put Johnny in the pram. Nat took Jill's hand. The birds, she whimpered. They're all out there in the fields. They won't hurt us, he said. Not in the light. They started walking across the field toward the stile. And the birds did not move. They waited. Their heads turned to the wind. When they reached the turning to the farm, Nat stopped and told his wife to wait in the shelter of the hedge with the two children. Oh, but I want to see Mrs. Trigg, she protested. There are lots of things we can borrow. If they went to the market yesterday, well, there's not only bread, it wait here, Nat interrupted. I'll be back in a moment. The cows were lowing, moving restlessly in the yard, and he could see a gap in the fence where the sheep had knocked their way through to roam unchecked in the front garden before the farmhouse. No smoke came from the chimneys. He was filled with misgiving. He did not want his wife or children to go down to the farm. Now, don't argue now, said Nat. Do what I say. So she withdrew the pram into the hedge, screening herself and the children from the wind, and he went down alone the farm. He pushed his way through the herd of bellowing cows, which turned this way and that, distressed, their udders full. He saw the car, standing by the gate, not put away in the garage. The windows of the farmhouse were smashed. There were many dead gulls lying in the yard and around the house. The living birds perched on the group of trees behind the farm and on the roof of the house. They were quite still. They watched him. Oh, Jim's body lay in the yard, what was left of it. When the birds had finished, the cows had trampled him. His gun was beside him. The door of the house was shut and bolted, but as the windows were smashed, it was easy to lift them and climb through. Trigg's body 
was close to the telephone. He must have been trying to get through to the exchange when the birds came for him. The receiver was hanging loose, the instrument torn from the wall. No sign of Mrs. Trigg. She would be upstairs. Was it any use going up? Sickened, Nat knew what he would find. Oh, thank God, he said to himself. There were no children. He forced himself to climb the stairs, but halfway, he turned and descended again. He could see her legs protruding from the open bedroom door. Beside her were the bodies of the black-backed gulls and an umbrella, broken. Oh, it's no use, thought Nat, doing anything. I've only got five hours, less than that. The Triggs would understand. I must load up with what I can find. He tramped back to his wife and children. I'm going to fill up the car with stuff, he said. I'll put coal in it and paraffin for the Primus. We'll take it home and and then we're going to return for a fresh load. Well, what about the Triggs? asked his wife. Ah, they must have gone to friends, he said. Well, shall I come and help you then? No, mm -mm. there's a mess down there. Cows and sheep all over the place. Now wait, I'll get the car. You can sit in it. Clumsily, he backed the car out of the yard and into the lane. His wife and the children could not see Jim's body from there. Now stay here, he said. Never mind the pram. The pram can be fetched later. I'm going to load the car. Her eyes watched his all the time. He believed she understood. Otherwise, she would have suggested helping him to find the bread and groceries. They made three journeys all together, backward and forward between their cottage and the farm, before he was satisfied they had everything they needed. It was surprising once he started thinking how many things were necessary. Almost the most important of all was planking for the windows. He had to go around searching for timber. He wanted to renew the boards on all the windows at the cottage. Candles, paraffin, nails, tinned stuff. The list was endless. Besides, all that, he milked three of the cows. But the rest, poor brutes, would have to go on bellowing. On the final journey, he drove the car to the bus stop. He got out. He went to the telephone box. He waited a few minutes, jangling the receiver. No good, though. The line was dead. He climbed onto a bank and looked over the countryside, but no. There was no sign of life at all. Nothing in the fields. But the waiting, watching birds. Some of them slept. He could see their beaks tucked into their feathers. Ah, you'd think they'd be feeding he said to himself, not just standing in that way. Oh, then he remembered. They were gorged 
with food. They had eaten their fill during the night. That was why they did not move this morning. No smoke at all came from the chimneys of the council houses. He thought of the children who had run across the fields the night before. I should have known, he thought. I ought to have taken them home with me. He lifted his face to the sky. It was colorless and gray. The bare trees on the landscape looked bent and blackened by the east wind. The cold did not affect the living birds waiting out there in the fields. This is the time they ought to get them, said Matt. They're a sitting target right now. They must be doing this all over the country. Why don't our aircraft take off now and spray them with mustard gas? What are all our chaps doing? They must know. They must see for themselves. He went back to the car and got into the driver's seat. Oh, go quickly past the second gate, whispered his wife. The postman's lying there. I don't want Jill to see. He accelerated. The little Morris bumped and rattled along the lane. The children shrieked with laughter. Up and down, up and down, shouted young Johnny. It was a quarter to one by the time they reached the cottage, only an hour to go. Better have cold dinner, said Matt. Hot up something for yourself and the children. Some of that soup. I've no time to eat now. I've got to unload all this stuff. He got everything inside the cottage and it could be sorted later. It'd give them all something to do during the long hours ahead. First, he must see to the windows and the doors. He went round the cottage methodically, testing every window, every door. He climbed onto the roof also and fixed boards across every chimney, except the kitchen. The cold was so intense he could hardly bear it, but the job had to be done. Now and again, he would look up, searching the sky for aircraft. None came. As he worked, he cursed the inefficiency of the authorities. The inefficiency of the authorities. It's always the same, he muttered. They always let us down. Muddle, muddle from the start. No plan, no real organization. And we don't matter down here. That's what it is. The people up country have priority. They're using gas up there, no doubt, and all the aircraft. We've got to wait and take what comes. He paused. His work on the bedroom chimney finished, and then he looked out to see. Oh, something was moving out there. Something gray and white among the breakers. <laughs> Good old Navy, he said. They never let us down. They're coming down channel, and they're turning in the bay. He waited, straining his eyes. They were watering in the wind toward the sea. He was wrong. 
He was wrong, though. It was not ships, and the Navy was not there. The gulls. It was the gulls rising from the sea. The massed flocks in the fields with ruffled feathers. And now they rose in formation from the ground and wing to wing soared upward to the sky because the tide had turned again. Nat climbed down the ladder and went inside the kitchen. The family were at dinner. It was a little after two. He bolted the door, put up the barricade, and lit the lamp. It's nighttime, said young Johnny. His wife had switched on the wireless once again, but no sound came from it. I've been all around the dial, she said. Foreign stations and that lot. I, I can't get anything. Well, maybe they have the same trouble, he said. Maybe it's the same right through Europe. She poured out a plate full of the trig's soup, cut him a large slice of the trig's bread, and spread their drippings upon it. They ate in silence. A piece of the dripping ran down young Johnny's chin and fell onto the table. Manners, Johnny, said Jill. You should learn to wipe your mouth. The tapping began at the windows, at the door. The rustling, the jostling, the pushing for position on the sills. The first thud of the suicide gulls upon the step. Won't, won't America do something? Said his wife. They've always been our allies, haven't they? Surely America will do something? Nat did not answer. The boards were strong against the windows and on the chimneys too. The cottage was filled with stores, with fuel, with all they needed for the next few days. When he'd finished dinner, he would put the stuff away, stack it neatly, get everything ship shape, handy like. His wife could help him and the children too. Well, they'd tire themselves out between now and quarter to nine when the tide would ebb. And then he'd tuck them down on their mattresses, see that they slept good and sound until three in the morning. He had a new scheme for the windows, which was to fix barbed wire in front of the boards. He brought a great roll of it from the farm. Now the nuisance was he would have to work at this in the dark. When the lull came between nine and three, hmm, pity he hadn't thought of it before. Still, as long as the wife slept and the kids, well, that was the main thing. The smaller birds were at the window now. He recognized the light tap tapping of their beaks and the soft brush of their wings. The hawks ignored the windows. They concentrated their attack upon the door. Now Nat, listening to the tearing sound of splintering wood, and wondered how many million years of memory were stored in those little brains behind 
find those stabbing beaks and those piercing eyes. Now, giving them this instinct to destroy mankind with all the deft precision of machines. Hmm. I'll smoke that last cigarette, he said to his wife. Stupid of me. It was the one thing I forgot to bring back from the farm. He reached for it, switched on the silent wireless, threw the empty packet on the fire, and watched it burn.